It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 301 for July 15th, 2012. This week, Adobe Audition CS6. Oh, I think I'm in love. Dwala isn't exactly PayPal or your bank, but that's okay. And in short circuits, room service. Would you like some malware with that? Four months and counting. Ubuntu Linux seemed like such a good idea. And a personal message from God Allah. You probably already know that I have a background, including several years of working in the broadcast industry. Several decades, actually. For that reason, I'm partial to applications that make audio productions sound better. Although I've used Adobe Audition for several years, the CS6 version amazes me every time I open it. If you work with audio, either as an amateur or as a professional, this is an application you should check out. Let's start with a quick personal history of audio. I started working for WCOL in 1966. The station's chief engineer, Tip Carpenter, had created a foolproof control room. Really foolproof. We had an audio board with just one or maybe two microphone inputs, a line for the newsroom, and four carts. And that was it. Audio processing controlled volume so well that it was impossible to sound bad, even if you tried. And I did a couple of times. WCOL's 250-watt nighttime signal actually sounded louder than WTVN's 5,000-watt signal. A year later, I moved to WTVN, where we still used turntables to play records, and if you wanted to sound bad there, you could. The equipment was old, but the sound of the station overall was really quite good. In 1968, I moved to Fort Wayne as assistant news director at WLYV and then to WIFE in Indianapolis, and in 1970 to WOMP in Bel Air, serving the wheeling market. Audio editing back then was the same in large markets, Columbus or Indianapolis, as it was in small markets, Fort Wayne or Wheeling. You'd probably be using a razor blade to cut audio tape and then special splicing tape to stick the pieces back together. Only at WCOL did we have equipment that allowed primitive on-the-fly edits. After being away from radio for a couple of decades, I found myself back at WTVN in the 1980s. Everything was still based on magnetic tape, but by the mid-1990s, electronic editing had been added. The hardware and software in those days was primitive, but it was still exciting. We could eliminate mistakes with just a few mouse clicks and keystrokes. By 2006, when I left the broadcast industry for good, digital editing and digital content were the rule, not the exception. But when I think of WTVN's digital audio workstations, I remember systems that were hard to use, slow, cumbersome, and really expensive. By contrast, Adobe Audition is easy to use, fast, live, and surprisingly inexpensive. Those old, dedicated audio workstations cost more than $10,000 and did nothing but audio editing. Audition is simply an application that's installed on your desktop computer. If you add the cost of Audition to the cost of the computer, it's probably still under $2,000. And the computer will do a lot more. If you've seen Audition before, at first glance you might think that nothing much has changed between CS3, 
and CS6, but first glances can be deceiving. You may know that Audition came to Adobe when the company acquired CoolEdit Pro version 2.1 from Centrillium Software. CoolEdit 2 was a powerful editing program that was a great addition to the Creative Suite. In the years since 2003, Adobe's software engineers appear to have rewritten the entire application, and the result is a real powerhouse. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see several screenshots showing the various workspaces available. The default workspace, for those who like the older interface, you can see that also. And there are specific workspaces for editing audio that's part of a video track, for mastering and analysis, for radio production, including the ability to add data that's essential to radio station automation, and even a setup that's optimized for two screens. But no matter where you start, you can modify the interface colors, the keyboard shortcuts, and the positioning of any component on the screen. Once you've done that, you can save the workspace under a new name for future use. Audition has two primary types of workspaces. There's Waveform, which deals with a single track, and Multitrack, where, as you've probably already figured out, you can mix multiple tracks together. Edits made in the Waveform mode are destructive. That means if you cut out a chunk of audio, the audio is gone. In the multi-track setup, most of the changes you make are non-destructive, and that means you can go back later in the session the next day or next year and undo anything you've done, or just simply tweak it a bit. But for me, most work starts in the waveform view. That's where the track can be prepared for use, mistakes edited away, noises easily attenuated. On the top part of the screen, you'll see what's kind of a traditional oscilloscope view of whatever audio you're working on, and really anybody who's ever worked with audio will instantly recognize that view. The view can be expanded to show individual samples, and that could be 40,000 samples per second or more, so there's rarely a need to edit at that magnification, but if you need to, you can. The waveform makes editing easy because, with a little experience, you can almost see the words on the track. But at the bottom of the screen is something that probably looks unlike anything you've seen before. It's the spectral frequency display. Lower frequency sounds are at the bottom, higher frequencies are at the top, the loudest sounds are bright yellow, absolute quiet is black. It's an interesting display, and this display has one huge advantage over the standard oscilloscope display. It makes certain kinds of harsh noises, clicks, pops, ringing phones, for example, stand out. And when you can see the problem sound, that's where the magic begins. Audition includes a healing brush that works about the same way the healing brush works in Photoshop, except it performs its magic on sounds. Paint over the problem sound and Audition will do its best to eliminate the noise and leave behind an inaudible patch. Additionally, you'll find other selection tools that you can try if the healing brush doesn't do exactly what you want it to. For TechBiter Worldwide, I don't use a lot of tracks, but I do use the multi-track view. Top track is where the intro, outro, and bumpers go. Bumpers are the music between sections. The second channel is where my voice track lives, and it is affected by a compressor, a reverb setup, and an equalizer. The next level down is where any interviews or other audio appear. And below that, there's a reverb and compression bus, and at the bottom of the screen, a master channel. The conditions under which TechBiter Worldwide is recorded aren't exactly the best possible conditions for quality audio. 
Although I like the microphone I'm using, it does produce a noticeable low-frequency hum. And because of fans in the room to keep the place relatively cool, the environment is noisy. You'll hear that in this short audio track. The TechBinder Worldwide podcast is usually recorded in an environment that sounds like this. And on the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see that the noise is clearly visible at the beginning and end of the track. So the first action to take is attenuating that low-frequency hum. I do that with a notch filter at 60 Hz and the second harmonic, 120 Hz. The filter is centered on 60 Hz, and I drop the gain by about 40 dB. Listen, you'll hear the change. The TechBinder Worldwide podcast is usually recorded in an environment that sounds like this. In the screen view, the shape of the noise has changed visibly, but now it's time to get rid of the rest of the room noise. The fans produce quite a bit of noise, but getting rid of it's relatively easy. I simply have to show Audition what the noise looks like, or sounds like, by selecting a part of the track without my voice. Then I call on the Noise Reduction Filter. Listen. The TechBinder Worldwide podcast is usually recorded in an environment that sounds like this. Any changes Audition makes will be based on its analysis of the noise. Because the noise is strong, I selected an aggressive filter setting to reduce the amount of noise by nearly 90% and to pull the noise down by about 20 dB. That's enough to all but vanquish the noise without too much adverse effect on the voice. One problem I don't have on TechBiter Worldwide, but it's fairly common in broadcast, is having an audio clip that's, say for example, 57 seconds long or 64 seconds long, and what you need is 60 to the second. Audition includes tools that can easily fix problems like that, and I decided to give Audition a severe challenge to work with. I gave it a 7 second clip that needs to be 10 seconds. Now that requires some explanation, because you're probably thinking, well, that's only three seconds. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that 10 seconds is 42% longer than 7 seconds. In other words, I need to add nearly 50% to the timeline. That's the equivalent of stretching a program that's about 40 minutes long to a full hour. Maybe now it doesn't sound quite so trivial. Here's the track I started with. It's about 7 seconds long. This audio track needs to be 10 seconds long, but instead of 10 seconds, it's only 7. Then I specified that the final track should be 10 seconds long, and Audition should do its best to preserve speech characteristics. So here's my 42% longer version. This audio track needs to be 10 seconds long, but instead of 10 seconds, it's only seven. Then, just for my own amusement, I thought I'd see what I could do to move my voice to a lower register and see if I could impersonate one of those Voice of God announcers that you sometimes hear on the radio. It's still seven seconds long, but now it's more bassy. This audio track needs to be ten seconds long, but instead of ten seconds, it's only seven. No, I don't suppose I can do that Voice of God stuff even with Audition's help. But Audition has a lot of magic. In the old days, edits weren't reversible. Once you cut the tape, let the part you no longer wanted fall to the floor, and used special splicing tape to put the remaining pieces back together, that was it. If it was wrong, it was wrong, and it would stay wrong. Now, in truth, that isn't entirely accurate. But correcting a bad edit was difficult at best. 
and there was no guarantee of success. Applications such as Audition improve things considerably with Undo. If the edit was bad, just click Ctrl-Z and move the edit points. You might have to do this several times, but eventually you'll get it right. But Audition CS6 offers a new feature called Skip Selection Playback, and here's how it works. You select a start point and an end point for your edit. Then select Skip Selection and play the track. You'll hear everything except what you selected. In other words, it skips over the selection, hence the name. If you like what you hear, commit the edit. If not, move the endpoints and try again. And if you want to see some more of the real magic, check out the five-minute video by Adobe Senior Solutions Consultant Colin Smith, who explains how the new audio speech alignment feature works. You'll find that video on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So the bottom line for Adobe Audition CS6, what else? It has to be five cats. If you work with audio and you delay upgrading to Audition CS6, you will regret it. Audition CS6 is one of those programs that earns five cats only because I have no more cats to award. This version really deserves 15 cats and a basket full of kittens. There are so many powerful features in Audition for so many different kinds of users that no review could ever hope to do justice to all of them. For more information, check out the Adobe Audition website. There's a link, of course, from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Buddy, can you spare a Dwala? Dwala is an Iowa startup mobile cash network that connects to your social community in a way that allows you to spend money or send money to others from your bank account. The recipient pays only 25 cents per transaction, no matter how high the transfer amount. Dwala uses proprietary technology and has business partnerships with the Viridian Group and the Members Group. You might want to learn more about this. Dwala is based in the heart of what the company calls the Silicon Prairie, Des Moines, Iowa. Unlike traditional payment networks, Dwala takes the industry in a new direction by allowing people for the first time to share money with their social networking contacts and by using their phone. Building products like FiSync, a service that provides banks with the ability to do real-time ACH transfers, has put Dwala at the center of technological innovation, the company says, and right squarely in the center of the payments and finance industry. So let's start with what the heck is an ACH transfer? Automated Clearinghouse, that's ACH. It's an electronic network for financial transactions in the United States. The system produces credit and debit transactions in batches, including direct deposit payroll and vendor payments. ACH direct debit transfers include consumer payments on insurance premiums, mortgage loans, and other kinds of bills. Debit transfers also include new applications such as the point-of-purchase check conversion pilot program sponsored by NACHA, which was formerly the National Automated Clearinghouse Association, but now known as the Electronic Payments Association. Probably more than you want to know. Both government and the commercial sectors use ACH payments. And if you're interested in more details and you'd like to see some examples of how it works, Wikipedia has a long article on the process. 
There's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Dwala's fees, as I mentioned, are astonishingly low. The organization's website says, and I quote, With Dwala, there are never any hidden fees, gotcha moments, or the irresponsible use of your private information. We are dedicated to building smarter technologies to create smarter decision makers. The cost of sending a payment? Zero. The cost of sending a request for money? Zero. The cost to receive a payment that is less than $10? Zero. The cost to receive a payment that is more than $10? 25 cents. That's right, a quarter. Whether the payment is $12, $1,200, or $12,000, it's a quarter, 25 cents. There is no fee to open an account, no fee to attach a bank account to Dwala. Actually, the confirmation process pays you a few cents to attach your bank account to Dwala. There is no fee for automatic or manual withdrawals or for just about anything else. But if you choose to participate in Dwala Instant, there is a monthly fee. Three bucks. Dwala Instant is an opt-in feature. You don't have to use it, but you might find it attractive. It provides instant access to payments instead of the usual several-day waiting period. When you turn the feature on, you can deposit and send cash without delay. Instant transactions are still $0.25, cents, except those under $10, which are free the only cost is a $3 monthly fee and a $5 late fee if you happen to fail to bring a negative balance back to zero or above by the day Dwala issues your monthly statement. How does that compare with your bank's $25 or $35 or $50 fees? Currently, Dwala is available only in the United States. And if you'd like more information, check out the Dwala website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, here's a report that is so vague that it sounds almost phony, but it was issued by the Internet Crime Complaint Center, the IC3, and the IC3 is a partnership between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the National White Collar Crime Center. It's also funded in part by the Bureau of Justice Assistance, so you have to give it some credence, even if it's vague. The IC3 says that you might encounter malicious pop-up windows that look like legitimate upgrade messages while connecting to the Internet from a hotel room. The threat apparently is more severe outside the United States, but it could happen anywhere. The IC3 describes the infection process this way. A traveler who's attempting to establish a connection via the hotel's network is presented a pop-up window notifying the user to update a widely used software product. If the user then clicks to accept and install the update, malicious software is installed. The pop-up window appears to be offering a routine update to a legitimate software product for which updates are frequently available. Okay, could they be any more vague? Lots of applications have frequent updates these days. It's hard to start a computer without having something tell you that it needs to be upgraded. The FBI recommends common sense, but the IC3 expands on that a bit. And I quote, 
The FBI recommends that all government, private industry, and academic personnel who travel abroad take extra caution before updating software products on their hotel internet connection. Checking the author or digital certificate of any prompted update to see if it corresponds to the software vendor may reveal an attempted attack. The FBI also recommends that travelers perform software updates on laptops immediately before traveling and that they download software updates directly from the software vendor's website if updates are necessary while abroad. I think I could say that a bit more succinctly. If you're offered an update when you're connecting to, or when you are connected to, a network other than the one in your home or office, don't accept it. If you'd like more vague information, visit the IC3 website. You'll find a link on the vague, sometimes, TechBiter Worldwide website. If you are anxiously awaiting Windows 8, you have about four months. And if you're dreading the arrival of Windows 8, you also have about four months. Microsoft says Windows 8 and its new Surface tablet computers will be available in October. Last week I mentioned the upgrade price for Windows 8, 40 bucks or 70 bucks, depending on whether you use the online upgrade or not. The Surface tablets are expected to sell for around $500 for the basic version, around $1,000 for a more powerful tablet. When in October? Microsoft hasn't said, but the company clearly wants to have the new operating system available in time for the holiday shopping season. Windows 8 is the most radical change in Windows since 1995. Those who are used to desktop systems will have to deal with changes that are perceived as monumental. Those perceptions, in my estimation, are wrong. Yes, there are changes. But it seems to me that the advantages of having an operating system that looks very much the same on a phone, a tablet, a notebook, a desktop, and a server outweigh the difficulties of dealing with what's, in reality, a fairly small interface change. Now, it's one that appears to be enormous at first, but it's actually pretty inconsequential once you've used Windows 8 for more than a day. Did you ever say to somebody, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time? Well, because I've been dual-booting most of my computers between Windows 7 and Windows 8, I haven't had much time to look at Ubuntu Linux for the past year or so. With the advent of Windows 8, I was beginning to look forward to dual-booting Linux and Windows 8. Now, I'm not so sure. Linux was still installed on a netbook computer that also runs Windows 7. This week, because version 12.4 has been out for a while, I thought I'd upgrade the Linux part of the installation, and that turned out to be kind of a bad idea. The process started normally. When I booted Linux, the system told me that an update to Precise Pangolin was available. I selected the update option, and the process stalled about 10 minutes later. I restarted the process, and the computer claimed to lose its internet connection about an hour later, after it had downloaded most of the files required to remove 30 packages, add 292 packages, and update 1,606 packages. Total download a little over a gigabyte. So I took the netbook home and tried it again. This time the process ran normally for about an hour, and then it crashed. Badly. On reboot, I could select Linux from the Grand Unified Boot Manager, or GRUB, but Linux never started. 
Windows would still boot, so I opened its disk manager, deleted the Ubuntu partition, expanded the Windows boot volume to take over the space vacated by Ubuntu, and rebooted. Grub is still active, and it still offers Ubuntu as an option, even though Ubuntu isn't even on the computer anymore. I'll resolve that little glitch when I get around to it, but for now I have a netbook that once again runs Windows, and that's really all I need. After all, Linux has never really been much more than a toy for me, because many of the applications I depend on, particularly those from Adobe, simply aren't available for Linux. I seem to have received a personal message from God Allah. Isn't that redundant? This seems like it would have been a great public relations stunt for George Burns when he was making movies as God. Friday morning I received an email from God Allah asking me if I knew of a church or a mosque, etc. etc. was in the message. A church or a mosque, etc. in the United States to receive him. If so, I was asked to email, call, or text message God Allah or visit his website. You'll see the message on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Be sure to click it for the full-size view. God Allah seems not to be particularly powerful because he seems incapable of finding a church or mosque, etc., that would welcome him, and even God Allah apparently cannot deal successfully with the Internet Corporation for assigned names and numbers. Because, he says, and I quote, due to communications errors, websites may or may not yet fully resolve. Hmm. God Allah also says that communications must be in English only, and warns that due to the nature of divinity, it is possible that this is the last message from God Allah to you personally, and due to the nature of this emergency, there could be spiritual ramifications for your failure to comply. God Allah sure likes the words due to, doesn't he? Now, the message promises an update before September 11th, so it's hard to determine what to make of this message. Somebody's idea of a sick practical joke? A link to a poisoned website? Just some sort of ordinary spam? It's anybody's guess, but I can tell you this, I'm not going to follow the link, and... On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll notice that I have obscured all of the links so that nobody else can be harmed accidentally. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website www.techbiter.com I'm Bill Blinn and if you'd like you can also send me a message from the website thanks for listening I look forward to talking with you again in a week